Hi, everyone. From myself and Jack at Pitside Perspective Podcast, we want to wish you a happy and healthy new year. As we kick off 2024 with a bang, we're excited to announce a special giveaway in collaboration with We Are United USA and Longacre Tavern. One winner will win a Manchester United goodie bag which features a signed photo from a club legend as well as official Man United gear courtesy of the official USA Man United Supporters Club and the Longacre Tavern. For more details, head on over to our Instagram account and you won't want to miss this one out. Enjoy the episode and have a great year. Welcome to Pitchside Perspective Podcast with your hosts Stuart Sharples and Jack Kolazar. Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of Pitchside Perspective Podcast. Today we're kicking off the new year with a special guest. Joining us from the land of the rising sun, all the way from Yokohama FC in Japan, is current technical and individual coach Lee Hayes. Having worked in many different roles within his time at West Ham and QPR, we are very excited to have Lee join us as he shares his insights and perspective on the role of an individual coach and the difference he sees between Asia and the UK from a development point of view. Talking about developing, Jack, how are you, mate? Yeah, good. Um, Continue to try to develop, I guess. I'm right good, you? I'm good, mate. Yeah, I'm good. Um, excited for this episode. Again, looking at a different, like a specialist role. Um, obviously we had uh, Sammy Lander on a couple of weeks ago talking about the substitution role within the game now looking at a, an individual coach so lots of questions and uh, looking forward to having Lee on um, sorry, you asked me the question last week so now it's uh, my turn uh, I heard it was too easy last week so I'm going to make this one really hard um, so good luck yeah. there are five Japanese players who have scored six Premier League goals or more who are they? yeah that's going to be hard for sure I'm sure you got a few already, but we'll see. Um, yeah, I wonder how many pl- Japanese players in total have played in the Premier League. Twelve players, twelve Japanese players played in the Premier League altogether, and five have scored six or more goals. Correct. Okay. There's some big players in there. So yeah, I'll think that might be that might be a tricky one for me, but I'll, I'll take a think about it. Of course, but uh, yeah, Lee, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on, mate. No problem. Thank you for your invitation. No, I look, really looking forward to this. And uh, with all new guests, uh, Jack will uh, take over with his uh, quick fire questions. They don't have to be quick fire. The, the five quick or not so quick fire questions. Uh, first of all, name? Uh, Lee Hayes. Favourite team? Um, Chelsea. Okay. How, how do you feel about the season so far? Um, I think we're in a transition period, um, of course, you know, not happy with certain things, but you can see Poch, has got a style, got a system. Just think we need another number nine um, and, and probably a winger um, and centre-backs. But again, we spent a lot of money, so we'll see what's going to happen. Um, you, know. uh, you started that off with, we only need, and then reeled off <laughs> half a team. <laughs> um, Favourite ever sporting memory? Um, ooh, probably me going to Brazil, um, traveling to Brazil, really. Um, that's kind of my personal one. Um, in terms of um, football wise, we'll probably I say the '94 World Cup when when Brazil won it. Show my age now, isn't it? 
Favourite ever kit? Um, Brazil 1998. Oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, best player seen live? Uh, Ronaldinho. Oh, very good. That's a good I answer. Think that's the first, right? That we have, we've had somebody say Ronaldinho. What a player he was. I think oh, it's just because... Yeah, I think everybody would love to see him. Just not many people have had the chance to be able to watch him live. Yeah, um, I literally done an advert with him. Um, the, some Pepsi advert. I was a kind of stunt double for Diego, you know, the Brazilian player, and I got a chance to meet him. So and actually like play keep it up is with him. So that was an experience. <laughs> we'll have to get that advert up on our uh, our social and see if people can spot you on that. Is it? Can, can no, people spot you or not really? Nah, not really. You have to freeze frame it like for like one second. <laughs> Hey, you, you've got that one second of fame. We'll take it. That's it. That's it. That's it. No, brilliant. That's uh, it's interesting. Obviously, speaking about obviously the Brazil and that's your your memory. So I kind of want to take that trip down memory lane and and for you, mm. just kind of speak to us a little bit about how it all started, really, for you. Like I said, um, you know, growing up in East London, you know, football was kind of the main sport, and just playing in the streets, playing goals, cage football, um. Yeah, just and then growing up around the era of like Romario and Ronaldo R9. Yeah, just really loved football and just really taken through kind of Brazil. Um and growing up in my area, there was a lot of physical players. I was small and technical, like a number 10, and they didn't really play that kind of position that in that time in that era. So like, you know, I'll go and troll for certain teams like, you know, Watford, Crystal Palace, and yeah, they'll give me say you're very technical, but um your size is the issue. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, I was on trial at Watford at under-18s, um, had, ch- had a chance there. And then I got a gig it, when I was 19 going to Brazil. And it was kind of by luck. I got scattered over Hackney Marshes, which is unusual. Um, and then I went there, played for some small academy. And then I had an agent that helped me go to three professional clubs. So I was playing for that like under-19s, under-23 squad. Um, yeah, it was a great experience. Um, learned a lot, learned the language, learned the culture, um, and kind of learned different ways of coaching as well, like without me even knowing it. Um, and it was interesting because they play on different surfaces. So we trained on sand, we trained on grass, uh, we trained inside. So it was like you're playing on different surfaces. And when I came back to UK, it was just crazy how I developed within eight months, like, you know, in terms of just awareness and, you know, one touch, two touch, and just know what to do with that kind of thinking about it yeah it's interesting that like you, you're experiencing different surfaces and you kind of you take it for granted right training as a kid on grass you're like well this is the norm mm. but then mm. training outside of the norm on your futsal courts your sand your concrete your cages mm. kind of will grow you and it, it's not also growing you technically but also your decision making as well the way the ball bounces the way the ball reacts so you must have learned yeah. so much from your time in brazil yeah, like um, something that really stuck out for me, stood out for me was the fact that they focused a lot on technique. So like, you know, there'll be a coach just finding balls and you touch and you finish and then you go one v one with um a player. Right? So they really focused on technical stuff, really. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Obviously, when you said like at, at Watford, Crystal Palace, you were yeah technically a good player, but you were small, and you kind of we've heard that mm. so many times, right, within the UK about oh no, he's too small, and even out here in the US, mm. it, you know, people look at the athleticism, but mm. if you're looking at maybe a young kid, that athleticism might pick up in four or five years' time. They might have yeah. that spurt. 
But so then mm. when you were in Brazil, was it a case that they didn't even look at your size? It was about what you can do with the ball. Yeah, what you can do in the ball, um, you know, what's your passing like? You know, do you affect the game? Do you score? Do you create? Um, like, I went there as a skillful player, but I came back as more of a passing player because, you know, they like to do their skills in wide areas. And if you lose the ball, they're screaming at you, like literally cussing you. So, you know, like... And like they they play one touch two touch when I was there anyway, so yeah, that's kind of like what I learned a lot. Oh, interesting! I'm sure uh, your time in Brazil has definitely influenced like kind of how you coach now. So then, in terms of your coaching, obviously mm. you played a little bit in Brazil and then went back home and played a little bit as well. Like, what was the transition like from being a player then into going into coaching? How did you get into it? Yeah, so like um, you know, I was a uh, um, like. I came out of football and working part-time for different soccer camps and different community sessions. And yeah, just kind of really, I wanted to be a coach after I stopped playing and, you know, just the love of football and be, having that passion. So I went into teaching. So I taught for like four years as a physical education teacher. Um, and like I coached on the side working part-time because you know how hard it is to get a full-time job in football. Um so, yeah, I've done that for a couple of years, working at Tottenham um, Development Centre, working at Spurs. Then I've got a, a job as an individual technical coach for Brentford part-time. So that role looked like I worked with small groups, um, 20 minutes, 30 minutes um, in the session. Um, and then when players play in the game, so you have three teams and one team work with me, two teams are playing, you know, AVA. And then we just worked on really just like passing technique, individual 1v1 battle skills. Um, and yeah, that, that, that I really enjoyed that. Um, and then that went well. And then I got a move to kind of QPR doing individual skills or so skills coach um, because I was known for my technical ability. I kind of transferred that into, you know, passing my knowledge down to players. Um, and I did that for a year. And then a full-time position came up as the fan, lead foundation at QPR working with, eights to elevens um and that was kind of my way into um full-time football but the reason why i called PE because i looked at all the good managers and you know at the time like jose Mourinho, um luis van gal you know they had a um, pe background in physical education and sport and they taught that as well so i thought you know that's a good way to kind of have on my cv as well um yeah, so then I went into full-time at QPR, spent two years doing the um, what, um, foundation lead, and then I moved up to the YDP lead, so working with the 12s to, say, 16s, and I was the lead 16s coach. And, yeah, I, I enjoyed that. That was really good because, you know, there's a lot of players that came through QPR. Um, and literally, I was at a game yesterday watching a player called Ryan Colley, and I coached him since under nines, and seeing him you know, coming off the bench and creating a goal for QPR was, was kind of inspiration, inspirational for me and really, I met him after the game and spoke to him as well, so it was good, yeah. Really that's good. fantastic, that, it sounds like a, a wholesome moment definitely for sure and I feel like that's that's definitely a reason a lot of coaches are in it, right, that you see these players later on in life and whether it's in the mm. game or out the game, they're doing well for themselves, so I'm sure that made you feel, feel great. Mm. Um, being a, a technical player growing up and you, you focus mm. a lot on your technical game, going into then that that starting role as like a, 
a group leader and that individual leader, did you find mm. it an easy transition because of how your game was as a player? You were able to translate that for the players then? Again, like it's, it's, you know, you have to learn the theory behind it. You have to kind of watch other coaches, learn from coaches. But yeah, I've, I've found the transition pretty easy. Um, in terms of how to develop my communication skills and dealing with parents and, you know, being kind of that presence of, you know, presenting in front of um, people and parents. But I was used to that because I taught for four years. So like learning different behaviours and learning how kids learn. And, you know, you know, you know, one size doesn't fit all. So you might have a kid that, you know, you know, he's not a good learner, but, you know, he's, he's very good on the pitch. So, yeah, yeah. So I'm kind of learning them teaching behaviours and teaching techniques was, was helpful for me. So then when, when you were starting, obviously, your first coaching journey when you were at Tottenham and then moving then on to QPR, what were some of the, the challenges you found that you had to kind of overcome as you were harnessing a coaching career? Um, just kind of, I didn't see it as really challenges, but kind of learning, learning off of people. Um, I think what helped me um, at the start was kind of like just coaching every day. Um, and I, and I, you, I kind of used it as one of my learning points is time on the grass. You probably heard of that. Um, I think that is key, getting hours in, coaching as much as possible, coaching different levels of players, coaching all different types of players as well. Um, so, yeah, time on the grass. And, and yeah, I, I, I made mistakes. You know, I still make mistakes now. Um, but as a coach, you don't be scared to make mistakes. You know, get on the grass, coach different players, coach as many players as you can. Um, and, yeah, just learn from, learn from others. And I think being at QPR, I had good, good people around me, like good coaches like Chris Ramsey, Paul Hall, um, so I could learn for them every day. Um, and always ask questions. Never be afraid to ask questions. Um, so I used to go and see other coaches work in other clubs, which was which was helpful. See how they do things, you know, because you the club has a philosophy. You have your own style, but I think you know, growing up as a coach and being a good coach, you know, you got to kind of see things and kind of turn it into your own. You know, like see a practice. Okay, yeah, this is good, but how does it help my players? What you know, what are the needs in the session? How can I make my players develop? Um, yeah, just, you know, for me, being honest, you know, I think when I first started, you know, that was a challenge of kind of being honest with parents, um, you know, where your child is at or where your, play, where your son is at and, you know, tell them what, where they need to get to, to get to the next, next stage um, and being open to learning. I think, you know, you always got to keep the door open and, and learn off everyone. Um, and one more thing, I think making making hard decisions. You know, sometimes you've got to release a player. Um, so I was the under 16s coach, and yeah, you know, I did release a couple of players, not just based on me, but based on the club. But parents always look at you as you you've released my son, not the club. So kind of explaining them and giving them reasons. But I'm always a big believer in that you have to be honest. And you know, if the player doesn't fit the club or the philosophy doesn't fit player then you know as long as you try to help that player to get to another club then I think you've got you've done your job Bill uh, Lee I think there's a lot of coaches who listen and um, they'll probably find your kind of story and the points you made there quite familiar to their own path mm. especially in the early years of coaching and 
You know, I agree. Mm. There's no replacement to being out on the field. I think it's Ericsson's ten thousand no. hours to be an expert, right? There's no hundred percent to, yeah. to finding a way. Whether it, hopefully you're lucky and you get a, you know a paid job that allows you to be out on the field every day, or maybe it's voluntarily. Um, mm. But during that time, obviously you're out on the field as much as you can. Like you say, you're doing a good job. Maybe you make mistakes, but you learn from them because you're being honest with yourself. Did you have any, like a, a mentor or a role model during that time that kind of helped you along that journey? Yeah, like I said, um, I think, you know, Chris Ramsey, Paul Hall, uh, Michael Hyde, uh, they still work at the club now. So I think, you know, them people around at their expos, they've been in the game, um, you know, Paul Hall's played for Jamaica. Yeah, of course, I had other people around me um, to help. But yeah, like if I... If I made a mistake, you know, I put my hand up, say, look, I'm learning. Um, of course, you've got to learn from the mistake and try not to make the same mistake twice. Um, that's what I kind of got from working in academy football. But yeah, like I had good people around me to kind of um, help me through my journey when I was doing my A licence, you know, that, you know, going to doing the sessions with the A-teams um, and helping, supporting them, which, which was a great experience. Um, yeah, and I had good people around me, yeah. What what do you think it is that made them good people? What what made them good mentors? What skills did they possess that helped you? Um, I think the skills that they had, you know, communication. Um, I thought, you know, giving me feedback, like telling me where, you know, in terms of it could be a tactical decision that I made. Um, they kind of understand the game. Oh, you could have done this and could have done this better. Um, yeah, just that support around getting feedback and I think as coaches or as individuals we always thrive to kind of get feedback and I think the more feedback you can get within sessions um, then the better you're going to be isn't it like and not feedback where they're telling you um, oh yeah this is good this is good this is good that's that's not helping me but is that like what is not what am I not doing good um, and I think as a player and I, I was always been told, okay, this is not good enough. This is what you need to do. And I'd rather be told that than, oh, okay, this is good. This is good. That's not helping me. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah you've got also, to be quite specific, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and also having that relationship where they believe they can say that to you and you can accept mm. it in the right way and, you know, mm. you welcoming that feedback uh, and yeah. you know, not seeing it as just someone criticising you, but someone as you know, trying to help you improve as well. 100%, yeah. And again, you know, it's the way you receive feedback is the way you give it to players as well, isn't it? You know, some players, you can be honest with them and open. Sometimes you can be a bit more firm with them and some it's need like a, a conversation. Yeah, and I think as well, like in today's modern game, especially with the youth player, a lot has changed about the dynamic between your relationship between players. It kind of, uh, we're all of an age where when we used to play as, as kids and youth, it was a case of just somebody really shouting on the sideline and encouraging you. Whereas now yeah. you've really got to think about not only what you're saying, but the tone of how you're saying it, the environment of what you're saying it. Like if you're talking to a, an eight year old, who's a lot smaller than you getting down and being like eye contact level, rather than if yeah. you're talking to an 18 year old, mm. um, you might be talking in a little bit more of a physical manner about you or a more of an aggressive manner of you. Um, mm. So you spoke there obviously about the communication styles. Is there, mm. is there one that you're, you would say you prefer over the other when it comes to coaching or is it one of those where it all depends on the ages as well? 
yeah, I think like, you know, I think one benefit for me, I'll coach all age groups. Um, and I've really wanted to do that because then, you know, if I, you know, if I want a job in the foundation phase, I've got experience. If I want to kind of do the 18s, I've got experience. So that's kind of what I looked at as myself and on my CV, giving me different roles where I can coach different players. And I feel like my communication skills from, you know, I think with the young ones, you've got to make it fun. You've got to make it, you know, yes, competitive, but you've got to be kind of like a, kind of like a good actor. Um, and like, uh, yeah, just make it really fun and, and enthusiastic. You, yeah, you got you got to speak, but not not so much command. Like, you know, question and answer, um, Q and A, um, you know, all them kinds of styles, and and let them kind of. I'm not saying let the teach be the game, but there's got to be as, aspects of that. Um, whereas, you know, the older ones, you got to be more commanding. That's my view, anyway. I, you know. I, my view of coaching is, is different than others, and yeah, yeah. For me, people might say it's wrong, but you know that's just my opinion. But I, I think with the older ones, you know, from 14, 15, you gotta be, you gotta coach them, you gotta sometimes tell them what to do, um, and guide them in a way where um, you're not you're not playing PlayStation players, but you're telling them, okay, you need to be here in this moment, um, you need to open your body, you need to open your hips. Can you play forward more? Um, yeah, and just give them objectives of where they, you know, how they're going to get to a certain place or what they need to do in that moment. But I'm more of a vocal coach, a more commanding coach, and I like to drive the session through intensity. I'm a big believer in intensity. And what that looks like to me is, yeah, pressing quickly um, and being creative on the ball as well. Obviously, you've held like different roles within all the clubs you've worked at. When it comes to that individual coach role, I'm assuming your coaching style completely changed. Obviously, because if you're in that one-on-one -on -one manner, potentially of bringing a player, mm. whether it's a session or a game, you're bringing them to the side. It's a case mm. if you want to have that personal interaction with them. Whereas when you've been mm. a a head coach or a lead coach of a whole team, the dynamic completely mm. changes. What have yeah. you found to be? the best way to handle the like the one-on-one -on -one interventions like when you're bringing a kid out to the side at all ages what have you kind of found to be beneficial when talking because obviously we have a lot of coaches listening to this where mm. they might be new to coaching and some mm. of them I find can find it intimidating bringing one player to the side and having mm. that that relationship moment what have you found to be beneficial for you I think you have to use different styles for different individuals, um, which is can be hard at some sometimes because you don't uh, build enough rapport with players and seeing how they react in certain moments. So for example, you know, if a player's playing and he's not doing that well and you bring him to the side, say, look, come on, you're better than this. Um, you need to do this and this and this. And then he goes off and he doesn't perform, then it might be the, the wrong choice. Or in that moment, he might not listen. And then three or four weeks down the line, you've spoken to him one-to-one, -one, you've showed him clips, I'm a big believer in, you know, showing players clips of what they're doing well, but also what they're not doing so well in. And then kind of coming up with a solution, a agreed solution where you look, in this moment, you need to be here. You know, can you get in a box? You know, can you time your run? Like little, little, little triggers like that. Um, and I, you know, I, I use a lot of trigger words like press and stuff like that, what a lot of coaches would use. Um, but I think once you get a, one, a player one-to-one -one and you show him that you care, I think, that is a game changer. Once you show a player you care, 
and they can see that through daily um, interventions and daily work, then they'll they'll run through walls. They'll run through walls for you. So I think using different interventions like one to one, you know, driving a session, getting players where they need to be, or telling players what to do. Sometimes um, I find that has worked well for me. You, you mentioned something I think really important there about showing to the players that you care. Sometimes, mm-hmm. especially in the academy system back home, it's, it can be viewed quite robotic, right? You're either the player that's going to make it or you're out the picture. So mm-hmm. it's a case mm-hmm. of if you're showing these players that you care, it again goes back to what you said earlier about the parent's perspective, right? In terms mm-hmm. of if I'm a parent turning up with my son or my daughter and I see lead a coach coming over, right, get in the session, let's get on with it. Or Lee's coming over and going, hey, Billy, hey, Sarah, how's it going? Like, how's your day been? And stuff like that. And you're showing yeah. that caring part of it because at the end of the day, no matter what age, even if it's an 18-year-old trying to get a pro term or it's a, a six-year-old in, mm. like, the development phase, they're humans, right? And yes, you want, 100%. you want to develop that. And I feel like players especially and you'll be able to say this when you've gone on trial at different clubs it's nervous and you're in that environment you're in a high performance environment where you're walking in and you're a small fish in a massive pond so Mm. when you can make that player feel comfortable and we go back as well to when you said you're a technically good player but maybe smaller in terms of size again it can Mm. be even more daunting for those type of players so how important do you think it really is to have that care of that player's welfare from that human point of view right mm. like, like I said like, um, I think building up rapport with parents because at the end of the day parents are the ones that bring them it's like a part it's like a part-time job if you look at it and I think a lot of clubs have realized that now um maybe in the past they didn't but you know as I say if you show to the parents that you care and and then the players, and they, they, look, some players are not going to make it and you've got to be realistic. And, you know, every time I signed a player at QPR, I said, listen, you know, this is just the start of your journey. Your journey is going to be a rocket road. You know, you might get released and you got to prepare yourself for that. Um, you might go on and, and make it, but you might not. So use these skills that you've got as a player and this academy experience and maybe go and play League One, League Two or semi-pro but then, you know, go into something else if you're not, if you can't make it. So I always used to tell players and to say, look, you've, you've signed, but technically you are a trialist because you don't know if you're going to survive for a year, two years, three years, four years. So I used to always say that to the parents and the player. And then some players, some parents used to listen, some parents didn't. But that's, as long as you can kind of say that to them and tell them, then yeah. I agree that that expressing care is a, a huge part of, and 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 often it doesn't take a lot of work, right? Like Stu mentioned, it just takes a few little questions and greetings to to make that feel that make that kid feel a little bit of love and and that he's cared mm-hmm. about. Um, but in terms of that communication and expressing care to your players, obviously now you're coaching in a different country. Do you notice any cultural changes? Has, has there been any adaptations that you've had to make in your coaching, whether it be the communicating and expressing care part or, or other parts maybe as well? Um, again, for, for me, coaching in Japan is, is yeah, listen, it's a, it's a culture shock. Like you're going to, I'm going to a different country where, you know, the Japanese language to learn is really difficult. You know, I think one of the top languages, the hardest language to learn, like Japanese, Chinese, maybe Arabic as well. 
don't call me on that, but that's what I've what I've experienced. But I've got a translator, so everything I say and I express, he has to translate on the go, um, which at, at times is difficult in terms of being patient because, you know, in, the, in if I'm just talking to a kid from UK, I'm saying, press the ball, go here. And then if it's not tra translated the right way in the same fashion, it can get lost. Um, so that has been difficult and that's a challenge, but I've kind of adapted well to that. And then speaking one-to-one -to, -one to players, um, the care is there because, you know, I think in Japan, well, what I've noticed in Japan, um, they don't really kind of do do that. And kind of I've been, I've been kind of a different coach to go out there and do things like that. Um, so they're, they're new to it, but they've been taken well into it and the players have adapted well. And I've seen players literally now ask the coaches, oh, I want to be in Lee's session because the care I'm kind of talking, the one-to-one, -one, um, and I'm giving players objectives. Whereas in Japan, what I've noticed is that like in the UK, we'll give players individual objectives, learning plans. J Japan have just started to do that now. So it's new. Um, so me going into this environment and bringing fresh ideas and this ideas, it's kind of, oh, this is different, but actually this is good. So that's what's kind of helped me so far. If I can just go back to the, the translator point, because I think it's actually something I was thinking about this week. I saw a video of, uh, yeah. I think it was Terry Venables back in uh, Barcelona. And he mm. was making a coaching point to Gary Lineker, I think it was. But then mm. we're speaking to other players and had a translator. And it, mm. by the end of it, got annoyed with how long the translator was taking to say it and said, yeah. stop waffling, let's get on with it now kind of thing. Yeah, now, yeah, yeah. How hard is that with working with a translator? I'm, I'm assuming the stoppages are longer because you have everything yeah. being said twice. What yeah. kind of, uh, what do you have to change within your session and plan for when using a translator? Like you said, it's, it's the, the time that it takes for you to get your message across. Um, and like, for me, the passion and like, like I said, I'm very a commanding coach and I like to drive sessions. So the trans, like what helps me with the translator is the fact that he knows me, he knows what I'm like now because I've been there for, you know, 11 months. Whereas before it kind of, it took a while to kind of get that going. And once, once he understood me and kind of, you know, we're, we're kind of good friends. So now he's, he knows when I'm going to talk. He knows what, now he knows what I'm going to say, which is scary, but it's actually good because now I can get my message across straight to the players. Whereas before it would take a little bit of time. And, and you're a coach with, with, you know, like you say, with the intensity where you want to get that passion and the energy across maybe with body language mm. or whatever it might be. So, so how mm. do you get that across to the player as well? Like same I'll do in the UK, exactly the same. Um, but again, again, pointing where to go or like just using my arm, you know, shaking my head or, yeah, that they're the kind of cues that I'll use or being aggressive and then he'll he'll kind of relate to that and talk. Uh, and of course, you know, sometimes words do get lost in transition and that's just, that's just natural. Um, and as long as it's not too, too way off the, um, the scale, then I can address it. Um, but again, you know, in my individual sessions, um, I've I've made players improve, um, and they want to they they have they actually asked the coach, oh, I want to be in this session. Oh, can he coach me? Can he do this? Because I'm you know I'm different than a lot of coaches there. So 
And I think the players kind of respect that. I was going to say, like, from your, you're a well-travelled man, obviously, from your Brazilian yeah. days, then into your yeah. days back home in the UK to now in, in Asia. What's kind yeah. of been like the, what's continued the whole way through that you've kind of brought now to Japan that you've, yeah. you've really relied on, say, back home that now is like really the difference maker for you when you're coaching in Japan? Again, so high intensity, um, making sure all my practices and my sessions are high intense. Um, no, no kind of, no time wasted. I use it, no time wasted. So, you know, if you've got a player and, you know, they're standing in line for like two minutes, that's, that's two minutes of development time that they, this player could, could work in. Um, again, I think ball rolling time, like, making don't stop the session just keep going work for 20 minutes then after 20 minutes you can rest um that's what kind of a kind of ball and and being creative as well like you know like um even even in the uk like i've seen a lot of academies don't do shooting um and this is one thing i brought to yokohama is you know shooting practices like sessions 20 minutes 30 minutes 2v2 1v1s you know shooting um, just making sure that players can score and create goals. Um, and that's what I've did is kind of attacking practices where you can score goals or you can stop goals. That's what, what I've kind of bought. And I've kind of used that throughout. Even at West Ham, I've done the same thing. Bought two or three attackers, work with the nine, work with the ten, setting, scoring, passing, um, and just be repetition. So lots of reps, lots of reps. Yeah, you, you talk heavy there on like the ball rolling time and it's mm. crucial for the development side of it. The more touches, the more they're going to be learning, but also then good mm. touches. So for, for coaches that might be looking at maybe getting into the individual route of the game, kind mm. of give a an idea of what a, a standard Lehigh session would look like when it's like that individual, maybe a small group or like mm. how, how the length of it, what you're looking at trying mm. to get out of it, what it, the session mm. design is like, just on not that that part of the game so, so like for me like if, if I'm doing like my favourite session is shooting so you know attacking towards the goal so it could be um, passing setting and shooting um, but then within that you're going to have another person after that, that nine's done that he's going to receive the ball wide from across then after that he's going to get the ball and go 1v1 with the defender so making sure that there's a lot of outcomes within the session so like the, yeah, you're working with a number nine, but also you have him back to goal, so receiving it back to goal. Then you're having him running, so get his timing of runs into the box. Then you're having him receiving the ball so he can touch and shoot. So then, yeah, you're working on shooting, but there's all different aspects, all different outcomes within a session. Um, that, that would be kind of my session. So I'll look at, focus on players' needs. So for a number nine, what does he need? So you might see, okay, where well, he needs to be able to score goals. How is he going to score goals? Well, he needs to be able to shut the ball. So he needs to be able to strike it off his left, off his right. He needs to be able to set the ball. So can he set and then spin? Can he shoot? Then he needs to have time he's running to the box. So when the ball comes in, what's his timing like? You know, does he get there too early? Does he get there too late? Um, and then, you know, one touch finish in the box. Because most, most, you know, most strikers get one or two touch max inside the box. Um, and then 1v1 scenarios or, or 2v2 two v two scenarios. Um, that's the kind of session that I'll, I'll build around the individual. You know, what do they need to get better? 
focus on what they need. Um, and I've, I learned this from QPIs, focus on super, super strengths. Um, working on super strengths, like making sure, okay, a striker, they need to have to score goals. So, you know, shooting, shooting is the... <laughs> if, you, if you're working on something else, then they're not shooting, then you're not doing the right thing. So, um, And then what I'll do, I'll speak to the coaches, you know, and then watch games, what have they done in the games, what can they improve on? Um, and then that will be kind of the, the focus of high intensity and focus on different outcomes within that session. How I like would... the idea of the, uh, the super strength, just in the idea of how can you impact a match? Yeah. You know, coaches often talk about improving a player's weaknesses or a team's weaknesses. But, mm. you know, the idea of if you can do one or two things exceptionally well, in a match, mm. that's what's going to actually impact the score line, right? You know, and like you say with a striker, what's the, you know, if they're just unbelievably good at scoring goals, mm. maybe you can accept that their passing is not as good as you would like it to be because the goals are going to win you the match at the end of the day. Of course, yeah. Oh, yeah the super strength is massive. Yeah, and you say about those super strengths as well. And like, obviously, you said we love working with the shooting style of players, the attacking players, the wingers, the tens. And I feel like every player, right, especially at the youth level, wants to shoot, shoot and shoot and shoot. But then you can flip it as well, right, in terms of you mm. might be working with the striker on a shooting, but you go and add in a centre-half against them, then you look at the different movements. So mm. how how important is it to make it as realistic as possible? Because, yes, you could have a mannequin and a player touch and shoot, but you're not simulating where that leg might be going, that follow-through, the rebound is. So how important for you is it to make your session realistic? I, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm a big believer in making sessions realistic to the game because, you know, I've heard stories, you know, John Terry saying, um, uh, I won't do this in a game. Um, I've heard stories, Fabregas saying, oh, the mannequin doesn't move. Um, I, I believe in that and I've seen, you know, and I'll make sure that my sessions are realistic to the game. So like you said, you know, if I had defenders in that, if I had defenders in my practice, I'll make them stand by the goal and then, you know, a ball's being clipped in so they can head it away. And then while the striker's taking a touch and scoring, then, then it's a 1v1 scenario. Then the defender's coming out and pressing. So he's working on his body shapes, working, you know, can he go and win the ball? If it's a 2v2, one presses, one covers. Um, and then again, you know, you're looking at a striker, like, you know, especially these days, a striker's got to be able to press the ball. So, like, that's not, you know, he's not going to get signed for not pressing the ball he's going to get scanned for signed for scoring goals. So then, yeah, you, you work on it, but you don't work it, work on it as much as you super strength. No, it's, it, that super strength, I love that. And mm. we, I think even at any level of the game, even at the pro level, even at the grassroots mm. level, we talk about this human relation. And you could say to any striker, right, you're a striker, you're expected to score goals. But the moment you mention that word like super strength, it almost gives that player that mindset that they're a superhero and they, they have that super strength. Mm. And it's that 100%. positive reinforcement of when that player is, is shooting or whatever session it might be, you're really mm. trying to grow that player's mentality. And I would like to kind of discuss more about the mentality side of it. Obviously, when a player is mm. coming over to, to you, maybe to work individually, do some mm. players maybe look at it as, not as a punishment, but like, oh, well, mate, my shooting must be terrible. That's why I'm here. Like, how do you look at the players from a mentality point of view and how do you kind of build their confidence? I think mentality is so important. Um, I think talent 
talent and technique will get you so far, but I think mentality will kind of that's that's the side of you know because mentality is you know you're gonna have ups and downs, and if you're a person that's confident and you know you're resilient, then that's gonna get you to the top. And you look at you know Christian Ronaldo, mentality is to the through the roof, and it's someone like him, you know, working on his super strengths. You know, of course, he still practices dribbling. He still practices stepovers. He still practices shooting. Um, so, yeah, if you look at him and kind of think, oh, okay, so, yeah, he's working on his super strengths every day. Um, so, yeah, that's the kind of person that, you know, you kind of look up to and, and, and kind of based, okay, this is the super strengths model. Um, and then what was you saying? So just say that from the question well, I was saying about like when a player's coming over to you, are they looking at it as a, a positive or are they looking at it as a negative that they're maybe being taken away from a session or they have to focus mm. more on like a, a different skill? So how are the, how is a player's mentality when they're coming over to you? Are they seeing it positively or how are they taking it? I think at the start when I first did it at Yokohama, um, they didn't understand it. But then once they saw improvement within the game, and they saw, wow, this is, you know, we're doing a lot of shooting. We're not used to this. And then they're starting to improve and improve. They 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 loved it. They was like, oh, yes, I'm here. You know, I'm going to, you know, my confidence is high because I'm shooting, I'm scoring goals, I'm creating. Um, I think I think any player doing something that they like doing, you know, they, they, their confidence is going to go through the roof. Of course, you're going to get players, you know, you're going to get difficult players saying, oh, why am I doing this? Well, but I think if you can tell them, and it goes back to my, my my answer before about caring, if you show players that you care and you say, look, I'll take you out of this session. These are the reasons why I'm taking you out of this session because I'm going to make you better at shooting. I'm going to make you better with your first touch. I'm going to make you a better player overall. And if you have that relationship where you're talking to the player, and that, that's why I'm a big believer in showing in clips. You know, you're showing in clips, you say this is the session, these are the objectives. Now you're going to go out and we're going to practice this. Then I think, you know, it will help their confidence. No, that's fantastic. We're speaking a lot now about obviously the mentality. What have you kind of seen? Maybe there's none, but is there a difference in mentality from Brazil to UK to, to now in Asia and Japan? Mm. Is there a difference there in mentality? Are you seeing that? I think in Brazil, you know, looking at South American football, the passion and the drive and it's their life and it, they breathe, they they live and they sleep and breathe football. Um, and I, I went to Brazil what, many years ago, 2003. So, you know, it, it was mainly different, different kind of era then. But, you know, the love and the passion, football's everywhere in Brazil. And, you know, some of them it is it's kind of make or break for their life as well. Um, you, you, you see... Um, um, you see Tevez and, and them type of players, Ronaldo, Ronaldinho, they, you know, some of them come from nothing. So that is kind of their life. Um, where in, in, in Japan, you know, they are kind of hungry. Um, they want to do this. They want to do that. Um, they, they work hard in the sessions. Um, Japan culture is like you tell a player to do this and he's going to do it to the T. Um, they're very respectful in, with that. Um, I think the only issue that I've kind of experienced, not an issue, but what I've seen is the fact that if you tell a player to be more creative and you tell a player, oh, you're free to do this, sometimes they don't know what to do because they're so rigid of, oh, they're going to do this, A, B and C. But if, if you tell them to do E and F, they, they struggle with that. Um, so that's the kind of the difference that I've noticed. In the UK, again, you know, UK football, 
Premier League's more physical. So you're going to create players are more physical here and more creative. Whereas in Japan, they're technically, they're just repetition. They do a lot of practices, um, a lot of passing. Um, they like to, you know, pass around the box rather than, you know, shoot. Um, and you've seen that through the national team, but the national teams get national teams getting better and better in Japan now. Yeah, no, that, and that's a fantastic. I was literally just about to ask that question as well. So I've seen the the twenty two World Cup reaching the mm. knockout stages, and I, I was seeing a, a a fact about the team that out of their twenty six roster, only seven of them were playing in Asia. The rest were playing in in Europe. So yeah. now we're seeing a lot more Asian players and Japanese players coming over to Europe. And like you look at somebody like Matoma, for example. Yes, great. Example. Now has that creativity that you would say maybe might be missing. So now are you starting to see more players wanting to go over to Europe from that youth idea? Like I said, I've I've been here, I've been in Japan for eleven months, and I think what I've noticed is Japanese football is they're so comfortable on the ball. Um, most of them are both both feet or both sided players. Um, they play a lot of football at a young age, um, and it, it, the system's different. So they use it as a soccer soccer school school system they don't have academy well the club i'm in they don't have academy from they start academy for under 13s so they have different elite centers a different like you have a player that could be in the bottom tier and then they're being selected and stuff like that it's it's, it's a difficult system to be involved in uh, what i've seen um but like for my role i've i've i identified players and the talented talent players but then when they go on trial, like it's so hard to get on trial. Um, whereas in UK, you have eight, four to eight weeks where there they just have one game, one trialist game, that's it. And they judge you on that. Um, and I've tried to say, and I think they're, they're open to learning different ways of, of doing that. Um, but that's what I've, that's what I've experienced so far. Um, but yeah, it's working. They, 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 they are developing a lot of players and they've got university systems. So, like for example, in Japan, not a player from when you sign from under 13s, you don't get released. So they could be complacent and going through the motions at times. But um, from the age of 16 and 18, they have 16 and 18s. Um, you have got a decision to go to uni after 18 or be a pro. Um, and Matoma, he went to university and that's how he got picked up because. He went to university, developed his body more. He was, you know, he's playing men's football. And then he, that's when he got spotted to play for Brighton. So, no, it strikes very similar to like the US college game almost. Like, 100%, you're yeah, going into 100%. college from 18 to 21, 22. You're developing mm. that educational point of view. You're educate, you're, you're developing your physical uh, traits, but then you're also getting that, that step by step rather than sometimes being thrown straight into the deep end. I mean, you yeah. look at somebody, somebody like a, a Kobe Minor who's at United at the moment as an 18-year-old and the weight on his shoulders, more mm. so now from a mentality point of view. Whereas in that, mm. that university setting, there's not maybe as much pressure. Yeah. So have you, are you finding that because of this, the system and Japan's now becoming one of the best countries in terms of youth development, that going to university and the way they do it is proving to be very beneficial? And do you think maybe European... Um, countries are going to maybe start looking at this model. 
Mm. Yeah, like I said, I, I don't know the model inside or out in Japan, but I've noticed there's a lot of like university football and college football in Japan is massive, like crazy. Like I went to a university game and yeah, there was like so much fans. Um, and like you see players that, you know, I went to the last university game and some players already been signed by professional clubs at age 21, 22. But if you just look at it as the way your brain develops, so people say, you know, making decisions and being aware, but your brain develops um, between 23, 26, isn't it? Like that's when you stop developing your full development of your brain. So, you know, at academies, we're releasing players at 16, 17, 18, but they're not fully developing. So, you know, is it right? Is it wrong? I don't know. Um, like it's just something that I question and, and I ain't got an answer, but if you look at Japan, you know, a lot of players are coming from there. Um, but so is it UK, like we've developed a lot of players. So I just think if you're if you've got an academy and you develop one player, two players per year to go to the first team, you you're doing the you're doing the right thing, isn't it? As long as you can got as long as you've got pathways for them players and you're helping them maybe get in a career in something else or you know, maybe another club, then I think yeah, like, I think that's that's the right way, isn't it? Yeah, no, it seems Japan are definitely up and coming in terms of the plays that they're producing. Um, mm. One story that always sticks to my mind about the Japanese national team and the culture around mm. it is that that level of respect. So in terms of mm. I've heard stories and seen it on, on social media where whenever yeah. uh, the Japanese national team leave a game, say an away game, they're leaving the change room spotless in terms and they're yeah. showing that respect. Do you see, is that a, a cultural thing within Japan? Like, is that passed down even to the youth players? Like, you might be at a game and they're making sure that their bench area is spotless. Like, how mm. how important is it, those core values? Yeah, it's like every, like, the club I'm in, every club talk about respect values. I think it just comes from their culture, their upbringing, you know, in their schooling system, you know, they're like this, they're, they're on it, you know, they're respectful, they say hello to you. You know, they they say goodbye. They the area is clean. They respect the environment that they're in. Um, and it's crazy. Like you go to a train station and they're all lining up. Like they're lining up. Um, and even the restaurants they're lining up and they're very patient with that. Whereas in the UK, you might get someone saying, oh, "I'm not going to line up in that queue. I'm, I can't be bothered." Where, yeah, it, it just comes through day to day life culture, and also you see you know, four-year-olds, five-year-olds going to school on their own, uh, which is, well, is unreal when, when I saw it. Um, so, yeah, that kind of goes into the football about respect and following, like, you know, following the system. The coaches are the same as well. So, yeah, it, it just comes within their culture. Yeah, you're definitely not getting that in East London. Everyone lining up at the no, train station. No, no worries. No, no. I'm sure, I'm sure your first interaction at the train station were like, is this a movie set or whatever? But it, 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 It's crazy. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. even in Brazil, like you've probably seen now being in, say, three different continents, a complete different mindset of how just life is. Um, yes, 100%. From a personal point of view, how are you finding life in Japan and like the differences? Are you, are you enjoying it over there? And, and what's exciting about it? Like what would bring yeah. maybe, because I feel like when coaches from the UK, they're looking to say, broaden their horizons they're looking at mm. australia's the americas maybe going into europe mm. i feel like japan hasn't quite been touched yet by a lot of uk yeah. coaches yeah 100%. what would be your advice to british coaches saying come to asia and experiment mm. 
like I said, you know, I think in what I've learned that you have to be very patient. Um, you know, like in, for example, like Japanese culture, they do things differently, like meetings. And, you know, if you want something done, you know, it's going to take a bit of time. I think kind of I've learned a lot on that. Um, but yeah, like I'm enjoying it. You know, of course, it's far from home. You know, my family's here, which is difficult. But, you know, if you can, if I can, if I can, you know, do this, then anything's possible. And also, you know, if someone sees that on your CV, they're like, oh, like, you know, how comes he's gone there? And, you know, of course, my aim is to be a top team coach as an assistant or first team coach somewhere in the world. And I think kind of having this on my CV shows that I can work and I can adapt anywhere in the world. Um, Japan's a nice country. You know, you probably get about eight months. No, I say nine, yeah, nine to 10 months a year good weather um so i've really enjoyed the sun and and meeting new people here um and yeah just developing coaches so part of my role is developing the coaches as well and i've enjoyed doing that um and enjoyed different types of players as well but i, I would recommend you know any uk coach if you want to kind of get out of your comfort zone yeah come to japan or go to asia 100 percent. and the football developing here so you know there's not many foreign, foreign coaches here you had Ange here Ange was here he was coaching at Yokohama Marinos, which is the second team that I, you know, they're bigger, bigger, more well, classic, big, bigger team than what I'm in at the moment. But you know, I just think, yeah, it's a, it's a time in my life to kind of stretch myself and meet different people. You never know in life. You go to a different country, you could open up a door where you could be a first team coach. So that was my, that was my dream, and that, that still is my dream. So no, that's fantastic. And I think just to kind of wrap up. Obviously, you've got many years of experience under your belt. For any new coaches that are listening to this episode, what would be like your final piece of advice to give out to, say, young coaches or beginner coaches? Um, like I said, three things for me. Time on the grass. Um, like, get that 10,000 hours of practices. Um, don't be scared to make mistakes. Um and then, yeah, having a mentor, I think having a mentor is key. And one thing for me is what I learned at QPR is, you know, I was helping, supporting coaches and um, developing the players. But, like, there was times when I had to have an hour of developing myself. Or, like, and I do that now, like, take an hour a day developing myself. Um, and that was key for me. So, yeah, just hours on the, hours on the grass, um, watch loads of football um, yeah look at sessions and see if you can make your own and make sure that they're high intensity and learn off everyone no, that's brilliantly and I really appreciate yeah. you coming on uh, this has been really insightful and I think there's going to be a lot of snippets from this that coaches at all levels can take um yeah. we wish you the best of luck in japan um thank you but before we uh before we do let you go jack might need a little bit of your help um for this trivia question jack i'll ask you the trivia question again because i know you sounded confused earlier by me my fault um so there are five japanese players that have scored six goals or more in the premier league who are they uh, yeah i think you mentioned one earlier matoma matoma yeah matoma yeah Matoma. Yeah, Matoma's got seven. Okay. Uh, I don't know if he scored six goals or not, but did Shinji, uh, Shinji Kagawa from Man United, did he get six, six goals? goals? Yeah, correct. Did he get six? My other definite is Okazaki, the Leicester player. So he is the top Japanese goal scorer with 14 goals. 
Oh, that many. Okay. Uh, and then the other one that I don't know if he was long enough in the Premier League to get six goals, but he was an attacking player, was Minamino. But did he get six goals for Liverpool? Great shout. Six goals. Uh, and then there's and one then, more now. So then the only other two players that I can think of are uh, uh, Inamoto and uh, Yoshida, the centre-back. So one of them has done it, one of them hasn't. Who are you picking? Uh, I'll go... Uh, well, Yoshida being a centre-back, so I'll go Inamoto. Incorrect. Inamoto. Yoshida's got six, Inamoto got four Premier League goals. Oh. Yeah. I actually did better than I thought I was going to do there. So. To be fair, I'm impressed. Done better than me. <laughs> <laughs> how did Yoshida get six goals? How, many, how long was he in the Premier League? He was there a while with Southampton. And you think yeah. about Southampton, yeah. pieces. But, yeah. No, yeah. I tried keeping it on theme this week. So, no, well done to you for getting uh, at least uh, the majority of them. But, again, Lee, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Jack, any uh, any last comments from you, mate? I thought that was very interesting, obviously, speaking about different cultures and, and how that affects soccer, but also just how it affects, you know, how you treat people more so than than, uh, than soccer players. So, uh, very interesting. Yeah, no, Lee, thank you very much. And uh, we bid you all a farewell. Thank you. No, thank you, guys. Thanks for um, the invitation. And it was a pleasure.